Hi, everyone, and welcome to the News Agent podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Senior Content Executive at Goodlord, and today we'll be taking a look into the concept of lifetime deposits and deposits in general uh, to see what the next steps may be following the Renters' Reform Bill white paper proposals. So to help me on this topic, I'm joined by Steve Harriet, CEO at the Tenancy Deposit Scheme. So thanks very much for joining me today, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. Um, well, for those listeners out there that perhaps don't know who you are and what the Tenancy Deposit Scheme is, perhaps if you could just kick us off first and just tell us a bit about you and, and the company. Yeah, so I'm one of those people who have more job titles um, than, than most people, because although I do run the Tenancy Deposit Scheme in England and Wales, we also run schemes in Scotland, uh, Safe Deposit Scotland and TDS Northern Ireland and the parent company. Uh, is the dispute service not a great name for a company when you're trying to promote harmonious relationships between landlords and tenants but there you have it so you know my day job really is overseeing all of our work in deposit protection and dispute resolution across the UK. Fantastic well that's a that's a good overview and obviously uh, you're the right person to talk to for this considering that that, uh, the many hats that you wear so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Um, I think then one of the first things that we could perhaps do is just set the lay of the land as it is now. Um, I think, again, you're the right person to do that. So obviously, as you mentioned, in England, Wales, Scotland, there are kind of different systems in place uh, across the, the rental landscape for deposits. So perhaps if we could start there, if you wouldn't mind giving us a bit of an overview as to what's in place across these different countries. Yeah, of course. And I think the the, the reason why there are differences across the UK is simply because housing is one of those um services which is just devolved to the the local administrations so if i start off in england and wales um tenancy deposit protection has been a statutory requirement since 2007 uh, across uh, those two countries and we have two versions of uh, uh, deposit protection in england and wales one is a custodial scheme where landlords agents are required to transfer their deposits once they've been registered to the scheme and we're one of three schemes which operates in England and Wales. We also operate an insurance back scheme so this is where landlords or agents register the deposit with us but uh, where they pay a fee to do that and they keep the deposit in their own bank account during the tenancy. The reason it's called insurance backed is not because the deposits are actually insured. What it means is that we have an obligation that if a tenant doesn't get their deposit back from a landlord who has protected the deposit in an insurance back scheme, we will pay the money to the tenant. We will try and recover it from the landlord and we have insurance in the background to uh, support that. In Scotland, uh, legislation changed in 2012. So in Scotland, again, there's a requirement for all landlords and agents to protect tenants' deposits with one of three schemes. So our scheme in Scotland is called Safe Deposits Scotland. It's the biggest scheme in in that country there's only a custodial version in scotland so there's no insurance back scheme and then across the water the irish sea you go to northern ireland and they've had deposit protection in place since 2013 tds northern ireland's the biggest scheme in northern ireland we have 85 percent of the the market there Uh, and they like england and wales have the two versions they have a custodial scheme and they have a uh, insurance back scheme just to give you a bit of scale, in England and Wales, there are currently between the three schemes operating 4.2 million uh, deposits uh, in protection as we speak, uh, worth just over four and a half billion pounds. 
I mean, that's a, a lot of money that you're protecting there. Um, just out of curiosity, why is Scotland that bit different for, for between the custodial and the insured, insured side? I think a lot of this is political, uh, if I'm honest. I think the Scottish government looked at you know, what was happening south of the border and the fact that we had these two uh, different types of scheme down here. They decided that they felt that in Scotland it would be better for landlords not to hold deposits in their bank account. So they were really keen, uh, I think, politically in Scotland to see deposits handed over for safekeeping to organisations uh, like mine. But then a year later in Northern Ireland, you know, the politicians there looked at the, what was happening in England and Wales and in Scotland, and they didn't go down that route. So they've gone down the insurance-backed and uh, a custodial version. So it's, it, is, it is different because of the politics. There are some other differences as well. So, for example, in Scotland, the maximum deposit a landlord can take is two months' rent. In Northern Ireland, there's no limit on the uh, level of deposit, although it can be you know, one to two months in practice. In England, however, with the Tenant Fees Act in 2019, deposits have been capped for most uh, tenancies at five weeks rent. But Wales, which has a joint scheme on this with um, uh, uh, with England, doesn't have a deposit cap. So, you know, it's even confusing for us, this variety of deposit uh, protection requirements across the, the UK. And every country has different rules for how quickly you have to protect a deposit and how, how soon you have to serve prescribed information. That is quite a lot of variation <laughs> across yeah. those nations. And they would you have... Landlords, I think, who have, um, you know, deposits across the jurisdictions. So if you're a letting agent in the north of England, you could well have deposits... Uh, held in Scotland um, so there are some of those geographical boundary issues and in Wales as well on the England Wales border you know there are letting agents who are working in both jurisdictions and have to um, you know accommodate these differences of approach in the different jurisdictions. Mm. No and obviously knowing the right rules in particular in this situation is, is quite crucial because it can have a knock-on effect further down the line and, you know, sort of... Well, mainly the knock-on effect is there because if you look at the penalties for getting this wrong, they're all essentially the same. So if deposits are, in, are protected late or not protected or prescribed information is not uh, served, you're in for a penalty of between one and three times the deposit. Um, and that's a significant penalty when you know deposits can be in, in parts of London, for example, two and a half, three thousand pounds. So getting this right is important. Well, I think that's that's a great overview and a good uh, way to set the context of the discussion that we're having today. I think that perhaps now we can turn to look a little bit at the the renters reform bill. Obviously, it's a bit of a topic of the moment, um, or it has been for a number of years, really. But now it's it seems to be gaining that little little bit more momentum. Before we take a look at the original proposals, specifically around lifetime deposits um, and what the government's now outlined in, in the white paper, perhaps we could have a look at the fact that they've now proposed moving to a system of periodic tenancies, uh, obviously sort of moving away from assured shorthold tenancies and, and transitioning to, to periodic tenancies. What, what impact, if any, do you think that this will have on, on the deposit um, system as we have it currently? I don't really think it's going to have a fundamental impact, if I'm honest. Um, you know, the deposit is taken at the start of uh, a tenancy. Uh, and in our current world, where we have these you know, fixed term tenancies that can be either renewed 
or switch over into a statutory periodic tenancy, it doesn't really change the deposit position because that's paid at the start of the tenancy. So when we move to periodic uh, tenancies here in England, and there's a different system in Wales, uh, which will be coming into force in December, but when it comes into impact uh, in England, at the start of every tenancy, there'll be deposit that is required to be paid uh, usually, and that will have to be protected in a scheme. So I don't think there's going to be a massive impact. I think there are some landlords that don't like uh, deposits going into a statutory periodic uh, position, and you know they'll often issue a new fixed-term uh, tenancy. And in those cases, they, you know, they currently have to reprotect those deposits in some cases. That's not going to occur in this new in this new model. But in effect, I think what the English government is talking about is is moving to a situation as we currently now have in Scotland, uh, where they essentially have that uh, that practice in place. And, in, and we haven't seen a big impact uh, north of the border as a result of that change in legislation. It does seem that quite frequently Scotland seems to to take that jump first and then uh, in England we, we follow suit. So it's nice having that model that we can perhaps base assumptions on about how, how what the impact will be. Correct, yeah. <laughs> and obviously one of the other proposals, again, not specifically about lifetime deposits, but um, around pets. Uh, this is one of the other proposals which has come out of the renters reform bill, the fact that landlords will obviously be encouraged more to to allow tenants with pets or make sure that they don't unreasonably withhold consent I think was it was something on those lines anyway in terms of the actual white paper obviously though in order to to allow that what they're what they're proposing to do is change the tenant fees act and allow this this extra fee this extra payment really in terms of pet insurance again what what impact do you feel that that may have on deposits I guess this whole concept of encouraging more pets because I'm assuming that there must be a component of of deposits and deposit disputes which tenants to to come with uh, pets and and potential damage so this is one of these areas where i think i do actually have some concerns about uh, what is happening Uh, and it's also you know an unintended consequence i think of changes that were made back in 2019 uh, under the tenant fees act and clearly you know during covid the level of pet ownership in the uk increased significantly i mean i think the rspca told me that they think 50%, over 50% of households now in the UK have a pet, cat or a dog. That's a very high number. Uh, and given how many people live in the private rented sector, you know, I would be not surprised if um, that figure was also replicated in the private rented sector. Now, you know, three years ago, before the Tenant Fees Act, the way that most landlords dealt with this, if they were going to allow a pet in, they would take a pet deposit. Now, a pet deposit wasn't a separate uh, deposit, but it was it was effectively an add-on. They might take, you know, they might have taken a month's rent uh, for uh, for for the sort of core um, uh, tenancy deposit, and they might have said, "Look, give us another two weeks rent, and we'll call that a pet deposit." And it just meant there was additional payments uh, in the deposit that could compensate the landlord if the pet caused damage or there were fleas or, you know, the banister was was chewed, all of these things we have seen in our deposit disputes. But the government outlawed that because they essentially capped the deposit at five weeks rent and stopped the, this sort of concept of a pet deposit, a pet, an additional uh, pet payment uh, to be allowed. And, of course, that has caused a problem because, you know, whenever we do surveys around pets, there's a lot of 
concern expressed by landlords about the damages that that uh, pets cause and there's often horror stories that you know we see i think in reality however we don't see a lot of disputes about pets explicitly about pets you know in our in our deposit disputes most of the complaints are to do with a lack of cleaning or a damage to fixtures and fittings now in some of those pets will have contributed you know, particularly around carpets, for example, which, uh, you know, can be damaged by by pets. But it's been really difficult for us to provide hard data about the amount of damage caused by pets. So we, we don't think it's a it's a huge problem in terms of damage. But now if I come to the, the white paper, you know, I think it does make sense to encourage landlords to take pets, given there are so many pets uh, around. Uh, in the private rented sector and it also makes sense to try to help landlords manage the consequences of that but the thing i'm concerned about is that the the suggestion that you can require the tenant to pay for pet insurance as an as a permitted payment under the act uh, i think fails to recognize that at the moment most pet insurance products exclude damage to landlords fixtures and fittings and the logic for that is that uh, it's difficult for an owner to control what a pet does you know 24 hours a day you don't have that control issue so and we have spoken to insurers in this market over the last 18 months i think because we anticipated this being a problem Um, and we have struggled to find insurers that are willing to provide that type of third-party cover either in a pet health policy because most pet health policies are obviously as they say are designed to uh, deal with a pet being ill um, so we, we spoke to them about you know could you do an add-on that would cover landlords damages they weren't really interested in that and then we spoke to insurers that are providing uh, you know tenants with insurance and again you know this area of liability for landlords is something most of these policies exclude so I think the challenge for government, if they want to take this forward, is working with the insurance industry to see if there's a sensible pet policy, uh, insurance policy that could be developed. And then my other concern about it is most of these pet policies would insure the tenant for the cost of any damage that they incur um, that is actually to the landlord's fixture and fittings. So you can have a situation where a tenancy ends. The landlord claims uh, claims against the deposit for damage, but the landlord may still think, you know, there's an extra, you know, three or four hundred pounds of costs that they're going to uh, want to recover uh, from the tenant. But what they're going to have to say to the tenant is, "Well, go and claim off your your pet insurance, and then pay me the money uh, from that pet insurance." So unless there's a model that gets the landlord to be the beneficiary of the the pet insurance product. I think that's another barrier to making this work. So you won't be surprised to hear that as a result of that, you know, my view on this and my recommendation to government will will be, why not consider, uh, you know, changing the the Tenant Fee Act to allow an additional pet deposit? It was a system that worked well uh, prior to 2019. It was a genuine unintended consequence, I think, of the the cap on, on deposits but I suspect it's a more workable solution than the one that's currently being proposed. No, it's, it certainly seems that 
this pet deposit concept, it would reduce the delay perhaps between people getting paid and, and you know, having to go out and ask for insurance and things. It would just remove that that delay that would happen between in the process so that a tenant yeah. can move into their next property without you know, having to worry about that for an extended period of time and things like that. I think so, because if you think about it, the, the you know, the, the deposit is there to, to, to manage, um, you know, damage caused by by the tenant and also their pets. But if you've got a situation where there's been quite a lot of damage done, it's it's probably not going to be covered by the five week deposit. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an area that, you know, generates a lot of interest from landlords and from tenants and from from pet lovers. Um, but let, I, I really do hope that as the as the you know white paper is discussed and as the bill comes out, that there's room for. You know, people like us, you know, landlords and tenant groups uh, to get together to come up with a workable solution. Well, I, I suppose that that's one of the important things about this white paper. It is just a white paper. It isn't the full sort of draft legislation at this stage. So it does still leave that scope and that time period to to have those those conversations just to make right. sure that it is correct, uh, you know, when it when it actually gets through to the final stages. We'll be right back after this message. Do you want to stop wasting time on admin and jumping between different platforms to get just one job done? Do you want to focus on your agency's business goals instead? From automated offer letters and e-signing to online referencing and even rent collection, Goodlord can help your agency get rid of the admin heavy parts of your lettings job in one integrated platform, so you can refocus on your business and your customers. Head to goodlord.co today to learn more. Goodlord, it's just that good. Well, we've already, that's already a, a fair bit covered on deposits. We've not even really got into lifetime deposits yet. So let's turn to the, this concept of, of lifetime deposits now. And let's take a look at perhaps where, where next for, for this concept, which is obviously, I believe, raised back in 2019 originally. I believe I'm correct in saying. So perhaps initially, if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit around what those original proposals were, what what is a, a lifetime deposit? So at the heart of this, um, it relates to the problem that some tenants find when they're moving from one rented home where they already have a deposit to another one uh, where they've got to pay a deposit. So this issue of double deposits, really. And the problem is that, you know, you won't get your initial deposit back for some weeks um, uh, after the original tenancy has ended. But before you can move into your next home, uh, you've got to pay probably a different landlord a deposit. So there's a gap which needs to be bridged. So the government, you know, was talking about this for some time before the 2019 uh, general election, and they were hung up on this concept of passporting. So this is the idea that a tenant has an existing deposit. You know, why can it be passported through to the to the next landlord? And that is a great idea and could be done. If there was no risk that some of the first deposit would be taken uh, to pay for damages to the property, because what happens then is if you if you say to the second landlord, "Don't worry, uh, your tenant's deposit is going to be passported over. It might take a few weeks, but you'll have it in the next two or three weeks." What happens if all the deposit is lost? And then you've got the second landlord saying, "Hang on." I was expecting you to pass what a thousand pounds to me. There's nothing. What's going to happen? So 
the concept of passporting makes sense, but it doesn't work uh, in a situation where there are quite often deductions from deposits. And in fact, over 50% of deposits end up with some sort of deduction being made. Um, it's lost in about 6% of the cases in full, but then there's obviously a, a, you know, a scale of deductions that get made. So the government has been, you know, was politically committed to the, the concept of a lifetime deposit passporting. Um, and then they, they spent the next two or three years trying to work out what they could do. Uh, and, you know, there's quite a lot of discussion both with us and, uh, and with consultants within the department who basically concluded uh, this is difficult to do for the reason I've just out, uh, uh, explained. So the government, I think, have moved away from that original concept. So you'll see in the right, the, the, the rented reform uh, white paper that they're no longer really talking about passports in, in of deposits or they're not talking about a proposal for lifetime deposits. What I think they're saying in there is that let's look and see what the market uh, how it might respond. And it is responding, I think, in two ways and potentially a third one, which I'll raise. The first is deposit replacement insurance, you know, zero deposit type solutions, where essentially the tenant doesn't pay a deposit up front, but pays for an insurance policy that insures the landlord at the end of the tenancy for any losses that might be uh, incurred. And then the tenant has to pay back the insurance company uh, at the end of the tenancy so it's sort of it's like a cash flow issue it's, it's switching the emphasis from paying up front to paying at the end um the second thing that uh, government is is looking at from the market is the concept of deposit bridging loans so this is the idea that at the end of the first tenancy the tenant is moving uh, and could they go and borrow money on a low cost uh, basis from a lender just to fund that new deposit for you know two or three months and there are lenders now starting to come into this space and we'll need to see what what happens in reality actually at the moment most of the tenants in this in this situation are borrowing from somebody but they tend to be borrowing from friends and family the bank of mum and dad is is making that work um, and i guess there is an issue there because actually if most tenants who are doing this are borrowing from mum and dad are they going to pay uh, a lender some interest for a deposit bridging loan i think we'll have to wait and see on that one to see how people uh, respond in that in that area the third thing which i think uh, we're looking at is how can we speed up the uh, return of deposits because actually this is a is only really a big problem if there's a big gap between moving out of one property getting your money back and then getting your deposit paid on the second one if we could streamline that that gap you know could there ever be a world where tenants got their their deposit back if there are no claims the day they moved out you know It'd be fantastic if uh, yeah. if that were the you case <laughs> in, the, in the home ownership sector don't you you know you people you know sell and buy properties on the same day back-to-back -back deals probably unlikely but you know is there stuff we could do to try and speed up this return the most obvious one would be you know saying to landlords look when a tenant moves out you really need to give them the deposit deduction proposals within, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks of the tenancy ending to try and give a bit more certainty as to when the, te the, the tenant may get their money back. Um, and there are some other things like allowing you know, tenants to pay deposits by instalments. That does happen with some landlords, but could that happen more? And also encouraging employers 
to give deposit loans. So my company, for example, we will pay uh, the deposit on behalf of a member of staff and recover that you know from them uh, either at the end of the tenancy uh, or or you know as they're as they're working month by month. Now, it sounds like there are a fair number of different possibilities out there. And do, do you anticipate that one will come to the fore and all the others will sort of drop to the wayside? Or do you think that that, that will kind of continue this this mixture of different um, options available? Well, you know, if you look at it at the moment, we already have deposit replacement insurance products. And, you know, there are differences between them. And you know, we're involved with zero deposits. So I need to declare an interest uh, there. Um so there are already products in that market. So I guess over the next, you know, two or three years, I could see some innovation happening in that in that particular space. Um, there are a couple of lenders who are working in the deposit loan market, and I think there's going to be some more uh, coming into the market in the the next few months. And if they take off, um, I imagine others will come in. But because we haven't tested the deposit loan uh, solution on a large scale basis you know we don't really know whether this is going to take off you know will tenants you know purchase these loans are they going to be seen as affordable um and will lenders you know have an appetite you know for for making those payments so we need to wait and see i i do think however that the concept of passporting is probably dead i think the idea that somehow these deposits could be switched between uh, landlords probably isn't ever going to see the light of day well, that does seem to be what the white paper sort of suggested. It was it was very much at the tail end of, of the document, I think. And uh, yeah, sort of obviously focused on the fact that it would help support some of these market-led solutions, but wouldn't necessarily invest more time doing it's quite as much high-level research as it perhaps suggested initially. Um, yeah, correct. No, it's all very interesting. And ju- just one one query, again, just out of curiosity within that, the, the idea of the, the bridging loans and that side of things. Do you see any impact of... I think that um, tenants are supposedly getting uh, older or sort of, you know, incrementally edging, edging up there and uh, talking about using the bank of mum and dad. Do you think that that will have, have any impact? Do you think that it could be almost like there are different products for different you know, demographics of, of renter or yeah, anything like that? Absolutely. And, I, you know, if you go back to the politics of this, you know, the big concern I think that um, government had was, you know, tenants on, you know, relatively low incomes not being able to access the private rented sector. So, you know, if you're a professional earning lots of money in the city, you know, paying the second deposit is not really an issue for you. You're not going to use a uh, deposit uh, loan and you're probably not going to use deposit replacement insurance. But conversely, if you're a very low income tenant who's in the private rented sector, can't access social housing, don't have much spare money, you know, one of the challenges for us is going to be, you know, can they afford even to take out a deposit um, loan? Will they pass the the credit tests that are required? Um, same issue for insurance providers, because obviously the insurance providers in this space, you know, have to face the prospect that at, at the end of the tenancy, if they're paying out for damage, they need to recover that from the, the tenant. So, all of these solutions don't i don't think they're all of market solutions i think potentially at the at the low income level of the market there's more room for local authorities and housing associations potentially to offer deposit bond guarantees to landlords so they already exist it's a bit of a patchwork quilt across the the uk but that may be much more appropriate to help those tenants um, mobility within the prs 
and thinking about loans or um, deposit insurance. And and also just on the concept of attempting to streamline that process just to get that turnaround much faster in terms of getting the deposit back into tenants' hands and so on. Is that just as simple as finding the right technology to make it possible or is it a lot more complicated than that? Is it uh, in terms of the risk and so on that's involved? Yeah, I think I think the technology does have a have a role to play, but it's more I think you know thinking about what happens at the end of the tenancy, and thinking about how technology and different approaches uh, could help. So typically, uh, what you need to see happen is before the tenancy ends, that tenants are reminded of their obligations. You know, you've got to clean the property, got to make sure that you know you're leaving the property in the same condition that you got it. You know, go and look at the inventory when you moved in. You know, is it is it at the same standard that it was now? So there's a bit of work to be done, you know, maybe a month before the tenancy ends. And that could be automated. You know, technology platforms could automate that. We send out reminders to tenants to say, you know, when when you're moving out, just make sure that you're leaving the property as you expected. And you know, where are you going to put the keys? You know, make sure the bins are put out, all this sort of basic stuff. Uh, and we've seen some really good technology platforms that automate that. Fantastic. Then making sure that when the the tenant actually moves out, you get the inventory done as soon as possible. And again, that's a mixture of staff time, you know, either the the, the landlord or the letting agent going around doing the inspection um, or outsourcing it to a third party company. And then getting the results of that checkout uh, inspection finalised and sent to the tenants for checking. That can be all done electronically. There's some really good providers out there who are, providing that type of uh, solution and you know early getting agreement from the the landlord or the letting agent as to what deductions you want to see from the from the tenant and again passing that through to the tenant really really quickly so i think it's a mixture of you know um uh, technology uh, staffing arrangements and also potentially you know landlords or letting agents you know recognizing that it's important they do this promptly and don't let it drag on for months and months and months. It seems that there is a fair few steps in that process that will uh, <laughs> that can be looked at to, to break it down and to just make everything a bit more efficient. Yeah, and I think, you know, if, if there is a dispute, you know, tenants can refer those disputes to us and we have a role to play as well, making sure that when the dispute comes to us, that we, we look at the complaint quickly, um, you know, we often pick the phone up and talk to the landlord and the tenant to see whether we can resolve it uh, online or on the telephone rather than waiting for a long, drawn out dispute resolution process. So we have roles to play. And at the moment, 25 percent of our disputes are resolved that way. Um, we've given ourselves a target of trying to deal with 45 percent of disputes just by picking the phone up and talking to the parties and trying to reach an agreement. All of this helps. It's an incremental approach, I think, to speeding up the end of tenancy returns and making sure that people can um, have quicker mobility between homes in the private rental sector. It seems that there are a few different a few different steps in the process that can be looked at, like I said, but perhaps no single solution. So um, it's been a very good conversation, but I don't think we fixed it necessarily during our conversation. But we've definitely uh, we've definitely outlined some of the the opportunities, some of the challenges there. Before I bring uh, the, the conversation to a close, are we, do you, would you have any other predictions in terms of uh, where deposits may may look in the future, or perhaps the the impact that the renters' reform bill may have in terms of the the deposit system as it is now? I think that deposits will remain with us 
for a long time. They're an established part of the the, the renting experience. I think landlords in particular are, are are keen on them. I think there are there are some moves. I think big corporate landlords, you know, landlords with you know purpose built student accommodation, you know, some of these providers are looking at the, the situation and saying, look, we don't need deposits. You know, we'll manage the risk on a on a on a corporate uh, basis. So I suspect that you know if if we see the greater dominance of you know larger landlords in the marketplace, they may come up with different uh, solutions. I do think deposit replacement insurance has a role to play, uh, and I suspect that that will continue to to grow, albeit you know slowly. I don't know about deposit loans. I think it's a very new thing, and we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait and see. But I do think there'll be, uh, like everything in this life, there will be uh, an increasing expectation that we speed things up. And that's where I think a combination of you know great technology that is integrated that enables the renting experience to be uh, swifter will be allied with an expectation that staff deliver great customer service and make this process um, less painful, I think, for everybody that's involved in it. Yeah, I think that's a very succinct way to 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 wrap up and and a good note to end on because i think it's applicable in more areas than yeah. uh, than just deposits as you said so i mean thank you ever so much steve for for having a chat with me today i do think that's been incredibly interesting and hopefully it'll give uh, our listeners out there just a bit of an idea as to where we're at now and where we may be going next in terms of uh, tenancy deposits so thank you ever so much good thank you